0: In the Jewish world of the first century, three pilgrimage festivals marked each and every year. These were festivals commanded in the law of Moses, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 16, at which all the men of the nation were to present themselves in the temple to sacrifice. None of them were to come empty handed. Each was to bring a gift appropriate to the measure of the Lord's blessing. In the world of the Diaspora, in which Jews were scattered throughout the world, this had become rather difficult. But we know that many still made the trip as often as they could. Certainly we know that Jesus kept these festivals, as did the apostles. It is likely that the vast majority of Jewish men in the region went up for the festivals to Jerusalem, in many cases bringing their families. These festivals are as follows, Passover, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Pentecost, or Shavuot, 50 days after the Sabbath, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what we celebrate today in our own way. And finally, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. These were not only festivals of sacrifice for the killing of animals in the temple in a ritual way, but they were periods of rest. I was told by my Old Testament professor in seminary that Sukkoth was essentially an October beer festival, which is kind of nice, really. They were community-building events, time in which covenantal commitments to the Lord were reaffirmed, in which the whole nation identified as a nation whose character and charter came not from a founder, this guy or that, but from God himself at a time when Jerusalem was understood to be the very center of the world, a city from which the whole world gained order and life. To understand the Jewish people, you must understand that they believe even today that they are a people with a vicarious vocation, that the whole world gains blessing, order, life even, from Israel and for her sake. Every year, three times a year, hundreds of thousands of Jews flooded through the gates of Jerusalem for these joyous feasts. And at the very heart of these feasts was a reenactment of a particular history, the salvation of the people from the hand of Pharaoh by the leading of Moses, in which they were spared from death and made a people set apart to worship God alone. Their wandering in the desert for 40 years, and finally their taking of the land promised to them in which they worked and harvested. What the New Testament presents us with and especially in the Acts of the Apostles is nothing less than the fulfillment of all the hopes of this particular nation. At a depth which simply put is stunning. On the feast of Passover, Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, offers the Passover meal but with a twist offering his disciples his body, his blood, a new covenant made with them by which he offered them his whole divine life, holding nothing back, asking them simply to follow him. Within less than 12 hours, he hung on the cross, the perfect Passover lamb, sacrificed for sins, not just those of a nation, but for the sins of the whole world. Here was the perfect Jew offering very vicarious sacrifice for the whole world, making atonement for sin, his everlasting kingship extending well beyond the boundaries of Israel to the whole world. Crucified and buried in advance of the Sabbath, on the third day he rose. Like a seed planted in the ground, the risen Christ sprung up from the earth, bringing forth new life, bringing multiplication, not just for the disciples, but for all. The firstborn from among the dead rested on the Sabbath and rose to bring an eternal Sabbath for the people of God. And seven weeks later, here we are, on the feast of Pentecost, a feast of harvest, a feast of the first fruits. The Feast of Shavuot was the very first day of the year in which the Jewish people could bring their first fruits into the temple. The Talmud states that these first fruits are to be the very things for which the land of Israel is praised. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. I'll be headed back to Israel in just a few weeks. And uh, the first time I ever went, I was blown away by just how lush that land is. I expected a kind of desert escape, and it was not that. (laughs) Trees everywhere, flowers everywhere. The only thing I've ever seen that is even remotely close to it is the Central Valley of California. One need not imagine what this festival would have been like in that particular year in the first century. Luke tells us how it was. In Jerusalem that year there were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And it is on this day that they hear the sound of a mighty wind, probably from the south, just outside the gates, where the disciples gathered in that very room where the Lord had not only eaten with them on the night before he was crucified, but had appeared to them several times in in his resurrection. It was here, and we read this reading this morning, that he breathed the Holy Spirit on them. It was here that he gave them the authority to forgive sins. It was here that Jesus showed Thomas his wounds. And each of these 120 disciples were marked on that day by fire descending from heaven, marking them, resting on them, giving them utterance in various languages. On this day, Jews of the diaspora are met with some of their own number, Galileans who have been indwelt by God himself. Each hears in his own language, and they are both bewildered and amazed. Gathered on that day, hearing the mighty works of God, are Jews from modern-day Iran, which are the Parthians, the Medes, and the Elamites, Jews from modern-day Iraq or Mesopotamia, Jews from Judea, Jews from all all of modern-day Turkey, including Cappadocia, Pontus, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, if you were wondering where those are, and North Africa as well, and the Arabian Peninsula, and even Rome. These are not just Jews from the Roman world, but, from, but Jews from beyond the Roman world. They have come to offer the first fruits, to remember their identity as a people, to worship and to recommit themselves to God, to bring the fruits of the harvest wherever they were to this place. And their reactions to the disciples are telling. The first group we read about are amazed and perplexed, and they simply ask, What does all of this mean? Catechized in the Jewish tradition, they know that such things are meaningful. People speaking in strange languages on important festival days cannot be meaningless. They are searching for a deeper meaning behind the festival and they've been searching for it for a long time. The others believe simply that the disciples are drunk with new wine, wine made with recently harvested grapes. Now, both are correct in their own way. These disciples are the first fruits for the work of the gospel, set to be offered up for a great harvest beyond anyone's imagining. Drunk with the Holy Spirit, a power invisible to them, and yet highly effective, they will bring a great harvest into the temple on that day. Not grain, not grapes, not figs, not dates, but a harvest of God's people who, like those first disciples, have become full of the Holy Spirit, baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and made members of a new and everlasting covenant. On that day, Peter stood on the steps of the temple and called out even to those standing in many baths, which flanked the south entrance of the temple, and he says this, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my men servants and on my maidservants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and manifest day. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's meaning on that day was plain and it is plain today that God has not abandoned his people to death. He has spared his own son from the corruption of the grave, and he will spare his people too. He will make them know the ways of life, to be full of gladness in his presence. And then Peter makes a strange reference to David's tomb. He says, you know, David, remember him? His tomb is with us to this day. And he makes the gospel completely apparent that Jesus is different. His tomb is empty, he was not abandoned to Hades, his body didn't see corruption. Peter even goes on, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. The visible, audible manifestation of the Holy Spirit is a witness to the risen and ascended Christ letting all the house of Israel know that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the one that they have waited for, the very Jesus whom those gathered on that day crucified. This message cut those gathered to the heart on that day. Even hearts of stone were laid bare. At the call to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, 3,000 responded on that day. You can imagine it. They were very likely baptized in those same waters that others used to be purified before entering the temple. And they entered to worship that day a first fruits for the gospel, a first fruit of many kinds, a great harvest for the church. I remember hearing a story from a missionary once. I believe this happened in Uganda. But this group of uh, Christians in a village had been Uh, had sent their evangelist off to a village uh, a a day's walk away. And he had gone off, and uh, when when this friend of mine was there, they were eagerly anticipating this evangelist's return with news of his trip. And he was four or five days delayed, and they all started to worry that maybe he had been eaten by lions. And on the fifth day, they looked out over the horizon and there came this evangelist with a gigantic smile on his face. He was singing and praising God and jumping around and and so excited to be home. And as they gathered around him, surprised that he had not been eaten by lions, they said, what took you so long? (laughs) And he said, well, my brothers and sisters, it takes about five days to baptize 7000 people. (laughs) The entire village that he'd gone to had responded to the gospel. This is what happens when people washed of sin, when the people who are the fruits of the gospel go out into the world. Today, my brothers and sisters, we stand as a people washed of sin, waiting for Jesus, baptized in the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the fire of divine love. Gathered from among the nations, we have been set apart by the blood of Jesus to be a vicarious people a vicarious people in this neighborhood, making our appeal to Jesus for the reconciliation of all things through his name. Come, Holy Spirit, and dwell the hearts of your faithful people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.